Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled today to be sitting down with Mr. Pierre Polyev, Member of Parliament, Canadian Parliament, representing a district in Ottawa. Pierre, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the show. It's great to be on the show. I've uh, enjoyed your show. I, I find it extremely informative. And uh, I've, uh, my wife and I have been known to watch uh, YouTube uh, in your channel uh, late into the night once we got the kids out. And, um, and so we've always enjoyed it. And I've learned a lot about Bitcoin and other um, monetary issues from listening to you. So I'm glad to finally make your virtual uh, uh, acquaintance. I hope we can do it in person at some point. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to hear you guys have been getting a lot of value out of the show. And, um, you know, likewise to you, you really made a splash in the Bitcoin Twitter universe when you went on a rant about what is money <laughs> on the floor right. of Parliament. <laughs> Yeah, well, listen, uh, and, and it was funny because it was around that time I think you were reaching out and then I realized your show is actually called What is Money. I'd watched another show of yours, but, um, uh, you know, basically the speech um, said a lot of the same things that you're saying, which is that money is um, a means of transporting value between people and across space and time. And sometimes, you know, asking a, a, a first principles question like that in the House of Commons turns a lot of heads because so often parliamentary debates are mixed up either in the minutia of a highly technical bill or in a bunch of partisan talking points that are incredibly boring and bake in a whole bunch of faulty assumptions from the beginning. Um, and if someone stands up and says, what is money? Everyone says, oh, wait a sec here. I hadn't thought of that. And I think half of parliament wouldn't have been able to answer the question, even though they walk around with it in their pockets every day. Well, I think it's a great deed for you to be asking that question in that space. I think it is one of the most underappreciated questions in the world when people, even like Ray Dalio, don't necessarily appreciate all the aspects of money. A guy that by all appearances has made it in every way. Um, I think it's very important that we ask these foundational questions, specifically in our forums of leadership, because how can we lead if we don't understand the foundations of things. So thank you for that. Um, thank you for taking that discussion. Uh, well, one of the, I think you're, you're right about that. And in politics, the most frustrating part, Robert, is that when politicians spend money, they they often have no consideration for where it comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in a parliamentary committee a while back and um, they were the government was proposing another $7 billion expenditure. And I, I simply said, where's the money coming from? <laughs> there were about nine senior public servants in our finance department who sat there dead silent uh, for about five minutes. And not a single one of them could explain where they were getting the money to fund the program because and he, they, they have all kinds of technical explanations about how the tax system uh, was going to deliver the money and how uh, what department was going to engineer it and which public servants would be involved in spending it and who would be receiving it. But none of them had even stopped for a second to consider that, that the money had come from somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, my poor little daughter is crying up there right now uh, <laughs> because she's paying the debt uh, that the uh, government is amassing with all of this spending. But they literally, Robert, it's it's amazing. They literally don't even consider where money comes from. They act as though it is just theirs. And um you know, how can you perform a cost benefit analysis if you don't actually consider who pays the cost? Right. Uh, and of course, most recently, people have been paying it not just through their taxes, but through their uh, inflation. Okay, so given that definition of money, and clearly I agree with you that it's a foundational technology to civilization, like we can't scale human cooperation without it. It's very important. Um, but to your point, politicians discussing how to spend money, you know, you said they're not doing cost benefit calculation, maybe they are actually because the cost is effectively zero to them, (laughs) to them, exactly, which leads to misallocation of capital, frivolous spending, etc. So what in your view is the proper role of government in the sphere of money? Well, I, I will answer that question directly. I just wanted to, to quote quickly one of my favorite commas, uh, economists, uh, Thomas Sowell, mm. who said, the first rule of economics is scarcity. There's always um, more demand than there is supply. Uh, mm. People always want more than what there is to offer. And the first rule of politics is to, to ignore the first rule of economics. Um, now, why is it that politicians can ignore the scarcity that is imposed on every single creature on earth. Every creature on earth lives with scarcity, whether it's a tiny microbe, um, whether it is a plant that is competing for soil and sun and uh, and uh, uh, carbon dioxide, whether it is a, um, you know, a, uh, a creature in the forest fighting for food. Every single creature on the earth, except the politician, must live with scarcity. Why? Because the politician has the ability to pass on that scarcity to someone else. And so he believes that he has an infinite supply of um resources to expend and even if he expends them badly it is of no cost to him Um, and that's how we end up with this uh, problem and um, so you mentioned what is the government's role in the issue of money well this is something i I had to stumble on um, after years of frustration watching governments overspend see i always said to myself well overspending will be unpopular because politicians will end up passing it on in higher taxes and no one likes taxes so but what i found was that they instead of raising taxes uh, which would be bad they did something they 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 raised them indirectly by creating cash um, and imposing an inflation tax and what is surreptitious about a, uh, an inflation tax is that nobody realizes why they're paying the higher cost. So as more dollars flood the economy and raise the price of consumer goods, people blame their grocer for the higher food prices, the realtor for the higher house prices, the gas station for the higher gas prices, um, not knowing that it's actually the politician that has in, inflated the cost of all of those things. And so um, the, what I think um, politicians, and we need to depoliticize the central banks, and they need to have a single purpose, which is to protect the value of our money uh, by fighting inflation. Um, and in my, my view is that the lower the inflation, the better. 
Um, I don't believe that uh, provoking inflation stimulates economic growth. To the contrary, I think it actually shrinks the economy, the real economy of goods and services by screwing up price signals um, and uh, by punishing good economic behavior. And so the role of, of central banks in money, I believe, should be singularly to protect its value and keep inflation low. Amen to that. So would you say then that 0% would be like the ideal inflation rate, the lower the better? Well, I, I think that would be an ideal that there's no question that uh, zero inflation would mean that people would not be paying um, higher prices for their goods and their dollars would retain their um, would, would retain um, their value. Uh, that would be the ideal. Um, it's not possible for any central bank to hit that target every year. But for example, Switzerland has a target of less than 2%, unlike the Americans who say one to three, the Swiss say under two. And as a result, their inflation has been about 1% uh, for the last 25 years. And the consequence of that is that the Swiss continually have increasing purchasing power. They, have, they did not suffer the same crash in the 2008 crisis that afflicted much of Europe and the United States. Why? Because they hadn't inflated asset bubbles, right? That, that it went on to burst in, in, in the US and in, in Ireland and uh, Spain and Portugal, et cetera. Their, their assets were properly priced. And as a result um, of their strong franc, the, uh, um, they are, um, uh, they as, as a result of their strong currency, um, they are um, able to effectively outpurchase international consumers uh, for globally priced goods like oil and agricultural produce and others. Um, and they have very low inflation now, even in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. Yes, excellent points. Um, and your point's well taken that the the blame sort of gets mitigated, right? When prices are rising, presumably government gets at least plausible deniability to blame the greed of yes. the gas station or whatever merchant instead of the actual problem, which, which is monetary debasement. Yes, exactly. Um, it's a sneaky tax. And uh, it is, um, I argue it's almost an illegal tax because in, in our parliamentary system, which the Americans have more or less uh, have adopted in a certain way, you know, you cannot tax what the people have not approved in mm -hmm. our British parliamentary model. And you have that in the States, right? Every mm -hmm. tax has to go through Congress. Mm -hmm. So what inflation does is it allows presidents, prime ministers, kings, dictators, etc., to basically break that 800 year convention that goes back to the uh, Magna Carta of 1215. Mm -hmm. And I have argued that our bank in Canada has broken its own law with the uh, by holding more uh, vastly more debt than its statutory than the statute allows it to. Yeah. Um, so I, I really think that it, it's a deliberate debasement of currency and imposition of inflation is an illegal form of tax, and it should be called out as such. I agree with it wholeheartedly. Uh, we've called it taxation without legislation. Um, yes, I think. It's pretty spot yeah, on. So in, in what I think is a related topic here, you're you're somewhat of a known advocate for individual responsibility, which is something I think is very important as well. And I think at least in Western civilization, we use property rights, frankly, to incentivize individual responsibility. 
Yet fiat currency, as we've discussed, it's this it's being used as this surreptitious mechanism for violating property rights via inflation. So what impact do you think inflation is having on individual responsibility itself? Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. It separates a number of elements of life that are meant to go together. So, for example, um, work is meant to go with a reward. Hmm. Money is the way of transporting today's work into tomorrow's reward. So if in transporting that money, it's losing value, then we're we're delinking um, our labor from its 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 reward. It'd be like uh, you know having a bucket. You go down to the river and fill it with water, but it, it's leaking. So by the time you actually get back to your house, it's it's half empty. Well, all the work that you did to go get it, or half of the work you did uh, did, is actually canceled out. Mm -hmm. And second, um, it removes the relationship between risk and reward. A lot of very wealthy people get much wealthier without taking any serious risk by simply by owning assets that inflate in value. Mm. Um, and then finally, it rewards instant gratification. Mm. Um, if, if dollar and it punishes delayed gratification we want to encourage people to have delayed gratification be responsible and say you know i'm going to put off um the the the, the pleasure of the moment in order to have a greater reward down the road by building up a surplus mm -hmm. through my labor well if your that surplus is constantly evaporating by inflation then your incentive is to instantly spend it so milton friedman the um classical economist uh he said he was asked once at a, in a public forum um what should i do with my money in times of inflation and he said spend it just spend it all because he said now i don't think it's good that you have to spend it all but it is the reality that if you don't spend it now it will be worth less later on. So it, it, the rational person in times of inflation has to go out and just buy as much stuff as possible before it becomes more expensive. It's like the, you know, in, in the Weimar Republic, they, you'd go to the bar 
and you'd order all 10 beer at the beginning of the night because as the night went on, they got more and more expensive. Well, that, that's an extreme example. But, you know, if you didn't if you didn't order those 10 beer at the start, you'd end up paying more. You'd be punished uh, for your patients. And we want to encourage people to be responsible, to defer their their pleasures in order to have a bigger reward greater uh, later on. We, but inflation um, discourages that. It punishes savers um, and rewards spenders. And as a result, we get more spending, less saving, and we're constantly up to our eyeballs in debt and on the verge of these repeating debt crises that seem to strike our economies once every 15 to 20 years. Brilliantly said. And yeah, it's ultimately disincentivizing us to accumulate capital instead incentivizing us to consume capital, which is... Yeah detrimental to civilization itself like the more capital yes. we have the more rich we are the higher standard of living etc yes so, absolutely completely agree with that i want to read a quote here from ayn rand and then ask you a question she wrote that the right to life is the source of all rights and the right to property is their only implementation without property rights no other rights are possible since man has to sustain his life by his own effort, the man who has no right to the product of his effort has no means to sustain life, unquote. So my question is, if we have then violation of property rights via inflation, and property is the basis of all other human rights or civil liberties, whatever we want to call them, isn't inflation sort of destroying like the foundation itself of Western civilization? And and if so, isn't there some moral or economic imperative here that we really do something about it? Well, inflation has um, destroyed civilizations in the past. It has definitely taken down, um, you know, historically, I'm talking, you mm -hmm. know, uh, particularly in the uh, medieval, medieval period and um, going back further into ancient history, you can find examples of uh, regimes that were brought down in part because of inflation. I, I would argue that one of the things that brought down Henry VIII was actually the, the great debasement where he basically, mm. um, he melted down the British pound and filled it with copper so that he could make more coins with the same amount of silver. And uh, that was one of the reasons why he, and of course there was a runaway inflation of about 80% uh, over five years um, in price increases for his population. This is one of the reasons why he was such a horribly unpopular king by the time he left. Um, but, um, and if you look at a lot of countries that consistently have runaway inflation, they're absolutely unstable. They're mm -hmm. politically, they're constantly in political upheaval. Um, and um, so, it, uh, we haven't had inflation to the point where it's destabilizing outside of the 1970s in the post-war period. It has just been gradually chipping away at the value of our money and the worth of our work. Um, but I do believe it is bad for, uh, in a lot of ways, it, it breaks down the most powerful form of economic communication, which is the price signal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, uh, Friedman also said, uh, I hope you don't mind me quoting Friedman. Oh, yeah. I know you're a, more of an Austrian guy. I still like um, Friedman. <laughs> right. He, he had a lot of great things to say. Um, and one of them is he talks about how complicated it is to make a pencil. And he yes. said, look, um, there are there are people in a lead mine, perhaps in, in Asia. There is someone uh, 
uh, in a rubber uh, factory um, in the Midwest United States can, creating the uh, eraser. Um, there's somebody in a titanium mine producing the, um, the raw materials for the yellow paint. Um, there's someone cutting down a tree in a forest in order to supply the lumber for the little pencil. And then there's some factory where it's all put together. And all these people are out there making a pencil. None of them really know they're making a pencil. I mean, they're just showing up for work because the wages signal to them that it's worth their time. It's the most optimal use of their day. And those who are transporting the those raw materials, they don't know that it's going to become a pencil, but they're just they're transporting it because the price signal is telling them that it is wanted. And then the consumer walks into the store and sees this pencil and all the information about all those thousands of people who help make the pencil is embedded in a little three digit price, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, I don't know what it costs for a pencil these days, but say a box of pencils is, you know, $4 and 99 cents. You're, you're basically seeing all of that work that has gone into that creating that box of pencils is, is communicated to you in a three digit price signal. If inflation though, is like taking the antenna on those old televisions that we had growing up and shaking it around and then the screen gets fuzzy and you can't hear your program anymore. It, it totally messes up the relations between buyers and sellers, um, borrowers and lenders, mm. taxpayers and governments, worker wage earners and employers, mm. because of the language with which they're communicating price, the price mm. is completely uh, out of whack. And so, um, uh, so it, it can lead to a major economic uh, and interpersonal breakdown in a way that people don't really appreciate when they see the statistical report of the inflation number every month. Yeah, excellent points there. And the, that essay that he's referring to, I pencil, it's one of the best essays I've ever, ever read. And it's exactly what you're describing. Um, and yeah, we're just it's how humans cooperate and interact at scale. If you distort that medium, then our, our, our action is thrown into disarray and disharmony. So, right. Um, absolutely. It's a great point. I, so you've also been outspoken on the impact of inflation on the housing market, which I think is something that's been disproportionately impacting Canada, it seems, or at least certain regions in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've also thought about this and written about this somewhat that you know, housing price inflation is a contributor to homelessness, right? As people are getting basically priced out of the housing market by others that are seeking refuge from inflation, which it's a very kind of a perverse situation. So uh, how big of an issue is housing price inflation in Canada today? And, you know, what do you think should be done about that? Well, it's the big, biggest single economic issue coming out of COVID um, in Canada. Um, one analyst has said that the housing is effectively cannibalizing the Canadian economy. Um, you can see that as, can, as housing has taken an increasingly large share of Canada's GDP, um, the amount uh, we are spending on research and development and business development has declined. So our, instead of our money going into capital, it's mm -hmm. uh, that produces things in factories and software and mm -hmm. uh, railroads and other economic infrastructure that's going like this and house prices are going like this. Now, why is that? Well, the answer is people can get a return on investment simply owning a static house that sits there mm -hmm. um, on the ground and doesn't move. 
because the central banks are pumping so much easy money into the housing market that it is that they it is inflating uh, at an exceptional pace. The last six years, we've had 85% total housing inflation. In the last year, 26% alone. We now have the second most inflated housing bubble in the world, according to Bloomberg. And according to Demographia, Vancouver and Toronto are the second and fifth most expensive housing markets on earth, which is crazy mm -hmm. because what do we have in Canada? Lots of land. We're the second biggest, biggest, biggest nation on earth. We've got more place, places where there's no one than we have places where there's anyone. Um, if you spread Canadians out evenly, they'd have 33 NFL football fields to themselves, um, each person. Wow. We have a bigger landmass than the US with one tenth the population. And yet, our real estate is vastly more expensive. Now, that's partly because so local socialist politicians block construction, but the other part is this easy money. So right now in Canada, you can get a variable rate mortgage for 1.5%, and inflation is the official rate, if you believe that, is 4.8%. Mm -hmm. So just even if you believe the official government numbers, you now have a an interest rate on mortgages that is 3.3% lower than inflation. So it's negative real rates of 3.3%. We're literally paying people to borrow big dollars and buy houses that they can't afford with variable rates that could go up without notice and increase their payments. And this is fundamentally a monetary phenomenon. And uh, Robert, I'd be happy to give you the graphs. Um, the housing prices were about to correct. They started correcting going into mm. COVID. QE starts, bam, in late March, 2020, all of a sudden, April, prices start shooting straight up. So we're, we're coming into a correction that was long overdue already. Mm -hmm. The central bank says, we're gonna shovel $400 billion into the Canadian financial system. And all of a sudden prices start going through the roof. Um, we know what is happening. The central bank is inflating housing prices and leading to a, a very serious risk that we'll have a, a crash down the road. Yeah, it's truly a disaster. And I'm glad you're speaking out about that. Um, let's talk about something else that's been really big in Canada recently, which is, and I hope I'm calling this correctly, the freedom convoy, um, which, you know, I'll let you tell me about this, but effectively the Canadian truckers self-organized this protest against government mandates. And it seems to have become a very large event. Um, I'm kind of just watching from the sidelines here through, through media, but I'd love for you to tell me a bit about the movement um, and what impact it's having. So it all started um, when let me step back. There, there's been a lot of frustration with the endless series of mandates and restrictions that uh, have continued ever since March of 2020. And the Canadian people are very deferential. Uh, we, you know, if the government tells Canadians that they have to do something for the collective health of the nation, most people say, hey, you know what, let's do it. And they did. Um, but it just never seemed to end. And increasingly of late, governments have been doing things that have no, that don't feel like they have a lot of scientific rationale. And, and the most obvious one was they said truckers who are doing international uh, shipments, that is across the Canada US border, have to show a vaccine uh, passport. 
And you got to think, okay, the, the, the trucker is sitting alone in his truck. He's not even interacting with other people other than to for a quick uh, stop at the gas station for a cup of coffee occasionally. But you have very little interaction. So even on the basis of the argument that we needed to re reduce transmission, um, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So a lot of truckers began uh, a protest that led to a, a convoy driving across the country. Um, and they've come from all over Canada. And they've been greeted uh, by Canadians at overpasses in small towns everywhere uh, as uh, um, with a great deal of support, people are waving flags. Uh, there, you know, there are sometimes five, six hundred people at an overpass mm. uh, waving them by. Um, the convoy uh, had thousands of truck trucks, um, and it just grew as the as they traveled from Western Canada towards the nation's capital and and from the east as well. And now they are converged uh, on Parliament Hill, where they parked their trucks. Um, and uh, they're basically saying it's time to end uh, the mandates and the restrictions and give Canadians their freedoms back. Beautiful. Well, we need more of that in the world, especially after the past 24 months. I did hear that maybe they raised some money for that and perhaps some of it was seized and then they started raising some money in Bitcoin instead. Was that um how did that work i don't know anything about that I, I did hear that gofundme was not handing over their donations at first but i i really don't have any knowledge about how that that all transferred i'm not personally involved with the organization of it i'm just mm -hmm. giving my support to, to individual truckers who are standing up for their freedoms and livelihoods that's great yeah and i've noticed something else on your twitter you know you've been very outspoken on this issue of covid being used as a never-ending excuse for power-hungry authorities to replace individual freedom with state control, as you write. Um, I'm paraphrasing there, not, not an exact quote. So, and you tweeted recently, I've noticed you've kept, you're retweeting this particular tweet about different instances of that. And mm -hmm. one, of, one, you, one of these retweets was uh, the federal health agency tracked 33 million cell phones during COVID and mm -hmm. is planning to track population movements for roughly the next five years. Whoa, what like what in the world is going on here? And um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that and other instances of this never ending excuse being used. Yeah, this story broke uh, about a month ago now. Uh, the government was tracking cell phone tra uh, traffic. Now they claimed that the reason was that they, they, they that that it would help them better understand population movements and therefore the the transmission of the virus and but it was revealed they want to keep doing this for another five years and nobody has told us that the government expects the covid crisis to go on for another half decade mm -hmm. which really raises the question of why then would they want to track the population for that length of time mm -hmm. and um you know you look at that example the first thing trudeau did when COVID hit was he put forward a bill ostensibly to provide COVID aid to people in need, but the it contained a provision allowing him to raise any tax to any level for any reason for two years without parliamentary sign-off. Uh, that is unprecedented in our parliamentary tradition. I've never heard of it anywhere in 800 years. Um, and, and of course, there's just 
the uh, they put forward a bill to censor what you can see and say online, mm -hmm. ostensibly to promote Canadian content. So you have these bureaucrats in Ottawa protecting Canadiana. You know, mm -hmm. you know, we don't want anybody in Canada hearing from Robert Breedlove. He's not. Uh, um, sufficiently uh, um, Canadian in his outlook. Uh, he hasn't eaten a, a beaver tail in the byward market and uh, he doesn't skate down the canal. Um, uh, so I guess he's not, his content would not be considered Canadian enough. And they wanted to censor what Canadians could see in order to keep out what they consider to be outside voices. Um, and the bill actually got defeated, but everyone from traditionally left of center artists and academics and library associations actually had to rise up and oppose this thing because it was so bloody Orwellian. Right. Um, but this, these are examples, Robert, of the, the power grabs that we've seen again and again since COVID always with some altruistic justification, uh, but never uh, a, an authentic one. Yes, uh, there always seems to be uh, some type of moral camouflage put on these different political actions that in almost every instance that I've seen is div divergent from what its true intention appears to be. Absolutely. Um, and what, one of the things, <laughs> I think it was Trudeau that said this, something about unacceptable views recently had some quote. I mean, it's, we've gone so far awry in the past 24 months and this all seems very unprecedented to me. I've never experienced yeah. anything like this. Um, I, in my study of history, I've seen it a lot. How are you experiencing this? Like, is where are we? What, what's going on? It seems like history's taken a lot of zigs and zags. Um, where are we today, and where do we go from here? I, I think that some governments are trying to instill constant fear. Um, in order to sustain their exceptional powers. Um, they are trying to make Canadians or, or around the world and other places too, I suspect it's true, but trying to make the citizens fear each other in order to justify permanent government overreach. And, um, you know, and, and so I, I think the governments that want to take away liberty always have to make people afraid. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly what our government is doing. They're constantly heaping fear and uh, doom on the population. Um, doom about all of the scary people that, that you have to worry about that live in your country and are on the internet. Doom about um, how uh, dangerous uh, life has become. And doom that always has as its solution more governmental control over what people see and say and how they spend their money and so on and so forth. So I think what people need to do is reassert their self-confidence and insist on reclaiming the, the, the ancient liberties that have survived many crises. Mm -hmm. You know, like what blew me away is they tried to shut down our parliament um, I think Trudeau wanted it to be shut down for a very long time when COVID started. When the Nazis were bombing um, London, the British Parliament kept meeting. They would meet in cathedrals and in other places to avoid danger, but they would still meet. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the greatest crisis um, in modern um, British history, but Churchill was still determined to go in and be accountable to the British people 
for uh, because he understood that that was the very democracy he was defending in the war. And so, yes, if they were able to do that during the war, they were able to keep freedom of expression alive, then surely we can do that here in Canada during a viral pandemic. Well said, Pierre, look, I'm really grateful to have you on this side of the fight for freedom. Um, I think it's more important than ever. Um, and thank you for being a voice of reason and sanity in this increasingly crazy world of ours. Uh, I'm sure my audience knows where to find you, but in case they don't, could you please let us know where they can find out more about you or your work? Yeah, click uh, with Pierre.ca, with Pierre.ca. And check out my website. Uh, I'm always I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube as well. So join me on any of those platforms. Love to stay in touch and continue the conversation. Thank you, Pierre. This has been great.